Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. And we pray, O Lord, that we would know your presence and your power in our midst today. We celebrate the ways that we have seen uh, signs of your goodness, signs of your life breaking through the darkness and death of our world. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue to give us eyes to see the ways that your grace is bringing about life and redemption and forgiveness and healing. We pray that as we see those things, Lord, we could give voice to testify to your power and your goodness and your grace. We come to you today humbly, uh, humbly interceding on behalf of families that are grieving, especially the family of Glenda Huxford and all the others who have been named. We pray that you would grant them your peace. We pray that you would grant them your strength. We pray that you would grant them the sure and certain hope that we have in the resurrection of the dead. We pray, O oh Lord, that as they cling to that hope, that they would be comforted, knowing that you are still with them. We pray for all who are sick, especially for uh, those who are near the point of death, O oh Lord. We ask that you would bless them with an awareness of your presence and of your strength and of your life that cannot be conquered even by death. We pray, Lord, for all who are struggling and suffering this day, uh, whether it's because of political conflict or violence, whether it's because of illness or addiction or broken relationships or unemployment or financial distress or mental illness. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless all who need you today, that they would be aware of your presence, that they would know your peace, that, Lord, you would bless even us who have gathered here with all of our brokenness, with all of our distress, with all of our grief and sin and shame and loss, that we could know what it is to be loved by you. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word in just a moment. That you would open us to what you have to say to us today. That you would prepare us for your grace. That you would fill us with your faith. That you would encourage us with your hope. And that in your love, Lord, we could abide and share your love with others. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, he who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Let the church say, Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1. We'll read verses 3 through 10 today. Um, but if you, can, if you can't focus for that long, really focus in on verses 3 through 6. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're I told you last week we're going to be moving through the book of Ephesians over the next couple of months, um, and we're going to take some things kind of slowly. In fact, uh, this passage we're going to read today in its entirety, uh, we're going to spend a few more weeks on. We're going to spend two weeks on verse 7, uh, just verse 7. So um, I encourage you to uh, be reading along with me. Uh, I encouraged you last week, and I'll encourage you again. Um, if you're looking to kind of create a habit, of reading scripture, a great way you can do that in this season is to read a chapter of Ephesians a day. That'll give you six days a week of something to read and a day of rest. That sounds biblical, right? Um, or uh, if you already have a habit of reading scripture, I'd encourage you to mix this in uh, with the other reading that you're already doing. Uh, if you sit down and read these six chapters all at once, it's not going to take you terribly long and will give you a sense of the full letter uh, that Paul has written and I think will help you see and notice uh, more than you would have otherwise uh, as we talk through these tiny bite-sized portions 
uh, week by week. So I hope that you'll pick that up as a spiritual habit. If you have questions about that or how you can get started, I would love to talk to you about that this week. Hear this word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love, He destined us for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me and for me now? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. No one ever thought that Rick Hoyt would be a celebrated athlete. The prognosis was bad when he was born. He'd sustained severe brain damage uh, during his birth that was going to leave him severely disabled for his whole life. And the doctors told his parents... Uh, that he would be a vegetable, kind of insensitively they used that language, and that they should consider putting him in an institution. And instead, his parents did their very best to treat him like he was any other child. They took him camping and skiing and swimming. They enrolled him in public school just as they did with their other two younger children. And he had a full life. He went on to graduate from Boston University and live in his own apartment with the help of some personal care attendants. But he became an athlete in middle school, which no one expected of someone who spent his life in a wheelchair and had trouble communicating. He attended a college basketball game one day, and he heard about a charity road race to support a young man who'd been involved in an accident, a student at the school, uh, and he'd been paralyzed from the waist down. And Rick Hoyt went home from that game and said to his dad, Dad, I have to do something for this guy. I want him to know that life goes on even though he's paralyzed. I want to run in the race. And Rick's dad, Dick, was 40 years old, and he didn't run regularly, but he was so compelled by his son's desire to do this race that he took his son and his son's ordinary wheelchair, and he ran that 5K. And he was very proud that they finished next to last. When they... When they, he, he, uh, his dad said that uh, he was disabled for two weeks after the race. Uh, he couldn't hardly walk after pushing that wheelchair. But when they got home, Rick, Rick typed out on his computer that helped him communicate, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. And so began Team Hoyt. They had a wheelchair made just for the purpose of his dad to push him in these races, and they began to race. Over 1,100 races they did together, six full Ironmans, 246 other triathlons, 94 half marathons, 70 marathons, 155 5Ks, one 47-day cross-country trek they did together. There's now a statue of Team Hoyt at the starting line of the Boston Marathon, life-size bronze statue. 
that they made after they did over 30 Boston marathons together. Through the love of his father, Rick Hoyt became an athlete. And together they created a foundation to help people with disabilities be more active and involved than they otherwise thought they could be. And I ask you today, who deserves the credit for what they accomplished together? Is it Rick? Is it, is it his dad, Dick? Or is it something more complicated than that? It's that kind of question that I began asking about God with one of my friends that I worked with when I was in high school at my first job working at Chick-fil-A. My friend who worked there, his name was Gray, and Gray loves Jesus. There's just one problem with Gray. He's a Presbyterian, a Calvinist. And he'd tell you that there's just one problem with me. I'm a Methodist. The term he liked to use was semi-Pelagian. Sounds scary, right? It means a heretic is what it means. And when we would close the store down together, we wouldn't talk about these things much, but a lot of times he and I would be left with just the manager closing things down. And as we scrubbed chicken fryers, which we weren't allowed to call fryers, they were pressure cookers. Um, And as we mopped the floor and as we filtered peanut oil, we would argue about theology. Namely, what role humans have in our salvation. Does God get all the credit? Is God's grace so good that no one would ever possibly resist it? That's what Gray would say. And I would say, well, what about the folks who remain unsaved? I think that your theology makes God a tyrant. And on and on we would go. He thought that I gave humans too much responsibility, that it it became a work to become saved, and I thought that his theology was not the best. So a lot of late nights we spent arguing with one another as we cleaned up all the mess around Chick-fil-A. But I think we both learned something about what it looked like to disagree about the finer points of theology and still love Jesus together. And if you're wondering, yes, he's now a Presbyterian minister. I'm not the only one who's engaged in these kinds of debates either. Uh, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had a Methodist friend named George Whitfield. You may have heard about him. And they had a similar lifelong dispute. So much so that they had to go different directions in their ministry. Uh, George Whitfield became one of the most prominent uh, preachers in the Great Awakening on this side of the Atlantic. They say he preached to over 10,000 people without amplification. He was a tremendous preacher. And they remained in relationship with one another throughout their lives, so much so that when George Whitfield died here, in, here uh, on the North American continent, they asked John Wesley to preach a service for him in England. And at that service, uh, John honored George well. But afterwards, somebody came up to to John and and said, "Uh, Mr. Wesley, do you think that you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? And they asked kind of hesitantly, afraid what John Wesley would say, because he had been so against the Calvinist theology that George Whitfield taught. And his response stunned them, because he said no. And then he continued, George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne of God that one like me who am less than the least will never catch a glimpse of him. I won't see him in heaven because he's going to be a lot closer to God's throne than I will be, even though they disagreed about theology. And elsewhere in his, in his friendships and in his writing, John Wesley admitted that he was just a hair's breadth from Calvin, that figuring out 
figuring out what role humans play and what role God plays in salvation is so complicated that even if we're, if we're being faithful, even though there's a wide chasm that separates us in one sense, we are very, very close together. I say all of this because Ephesians 1 becomes oftentimes one of the battle, one of the battle lines for this debate. And frankly, when we read it, it sounds kind of like the Calvinists might be right. Phrases like chosen in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us in love to be his sons and daughters can raise a lot of questions that we can spend a lifetime parsing out. And if we do that in a spirit of trying to understand deeper and deeper the depths of God's grace, it is a beautiful thing. But if we do it in a spirit of just trying to win and score points, it's not going to get us very far. So I think maybe the story that I told as we got started is helpful. That if you think about Team Hoyt and who accomplished what in that relationship, you're asking the wrong question. Certainly the father, Dick, did most of the work, right? He did the best he could before his son even knew what was going on to give him a normal childhood, to teach his son that being paralyzed did not end his life. And then he provided all of the propulsion, all of the power for all 1,100 races. The story starts and ends with Dick's love for his son. But he did it all for Rick. And Rick was the one who wanted to run, That 40-year-old dad was probably not going to get out and run a 5K that week without the prompting of his son. They'd have never done all those races if Rick had never asked his dad. The story is not one of who gets the credit, right? The story is one of a father's untiring, indefatigable, that's a big word, love. The love of a father that never gets tired through 1,100 races. He pulled his son swimming. He had a bike specially made so they could ride in triathlons together, carrying hundreds of pounds extra from what the average triathlete had to do. And he ran, pushing his son all the way to the finish line. A father who has untiring love. And a son who wants nothing more than to be in the race with his dad and encouraging whoever else he can along the way, teaching the lesson that he learned first from his dad, that disability doesn't have to be the end of your life. Last week as we started Ephesians, I hope I communicated well how this letter flows out of Paul's experience of God's grace. Paul was not interested in encountering Jesus Christ, the risen, resurrected Lord. In fact, he wanted to do whatever he could to stamp out the message of Jesus. Paul was not looking for Jesus. And Jesus met him anyway and made him the greatest missionary that the world has ever known. And he introduces himself this way. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Because there was no other way that Paul was going to become an apostle of Jesus. As we talked about the start of this letter, I tried to talk to you about the, the category of blessing. That a blessing is unearned and undeserved. It's not merited by the recipient in any way. And yet it comes with responsibility. It comes with a vocation to live as a saint of God, holy and blameless before the Lord. 
Rick Hoyt had not done anything to deserve his parents' care and attention and effort to give him a normal life. But when he did live in their love, he felt a responsibility to pass the message along that paralysis does not end your life. We talked last week about how to the unrepentant unbeliever, the gospel is an unwanted but needed intervention. And this week, we begin to see the content of that. In verse 1, Paul says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and that he's writing to the saints who are also faithful in Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says that God has blessed us in Christ. In verse 4, he says that God has chosen us in Christ. In verse 5, he says that he's destined us in love to be his children through Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, he talks about the grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved who is no other than Jesus Christ. Paul cannot stop talking about Jesus. The gospel is a story about a father and a son and how they invite others into their relationship. It's a story that starts before any of us are aware of it, before even the creation of the universe, before God tossed down the foundation of the world on which he would construct all of the beauty and glory that he has made. From the heavenly places, God looked at a world that was not yet made and the people that would inhabit it that he had not yet formed together. And he said, there are going to be some who are made in my image that will stand before me blameless and holy. And I'm going to make that possible by putting them in my son, Jesus Christ. He makes it happen. He chose us. He chose you. He chose me. He chose us in love in Christ, adopting us through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, making us members of his family when we did not belong. Jesus' mission to save the world, Jesus' mission to save you, is not some half-cocked plan hastily put together at the last minute. It was always the plan. That no matter how you strayed, no matter how broken the world got, no matter how much you suffered, no matter how much you sinned, no matter how much the world beat you up, Jesus was going to come and in himself make space for you to enter into his father's family. And his dad wanted nothing more than to include you in the family of love that he had already made. Long before you knew anything about God, before you wanted to pay any mind to him, before you were capable of producing anything for God, and maybe when the world thought you were worthless, God was preparing the way for you to be a part of his family. And through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate at Easter, through the life of the beloved, he's made space for you to be loved too adopted into his family, a full participant in his life, a full heir to all of his promises. Today we were supposed to get to baptize Judah Flowers uh, in, uh, in our first service. Uh, and it turned out he had a fever today, and we'll have to do that um, again sometime next week. But because of that, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about baptism today. That in baptism... Beyond our understanding, whether we're 60 or whether we're 60 days, God's salvation comes to us. 
And God's salvation is rooted in his calling of his people out of darkness and into marvelous light. It's rooted in God's willful adoption of lost and forgotten and otherwise important people that God says, I love you and I want you in my family. And in the process of doing that, God does something incredible. He starts to make those lost and forgotten and broken people agents of his redemption in the world. They start to learn how to say that whatever brokenness was in their life, whatever sin, whatever rejection they had felt by the world does not mean that their life is over. In fact, there's a way that when you're with your father as he carries you along in the race, that your disabilities begin to disappear altogether. And that's what we believe about what happens in baptism. That in baptism by faith in Christ, God's work to save us that began before the foundations of the world becomes something that we get to participate in. As infants or as adults, that in the act of being baptized, we are included in God's mighty acts of salvation. We are incorporated into the body of Christ. We are adopted into the family of God. And what a beautiful family it is. A family of all ages family of all nations, a family of all races, a family of failures and rejects and lost causes who in Christ have somehow, by the will of God, by his good pleasure, become beloved daughters and sons, according to the pleasure of his goodwill. Maybe that speaks to you today. Maybe you feel forgotten. Neglected, bruised, broken, battered, rejected, forsaken, abandoned. Maybe you feel like a dirty, rotten sinner today. With sin that's been painfully public. Or with sin that's been destructively private that only you know about. And what I want you to hear today is that the gospel is not primarily about you. But it is always absolutely for you. The gospel is about God's spiritual blessing for you. The blessing from the heavenly places that offers you abundant, eternal life and a welcome into his family. It's the kind of promise that most folks can't follow through on. But Jesus can, and he has, and he will, and that was his intention all along. God wants you and his family. He wants you in the race with him. He wants you to run the race with him, even if you can't do anything at all except ride along. He wants to call you beloved. He wants to adopt you and love you in the same way that he loves his son, Jesus. God wants to bring you in Christ into his family. And by his grace, maybe you're ready to tell him you're up for the ride. Maybe if you haven't been baptized, God is calling you to be baptized. Maybe God is calling you to reaffirm your faith. Maybe God is calling you to remember the grace offered to you in your baptism and live into it more fully. Whatever it is, I hope that you'll listen. And if you already know these things, I hope that you'll be looking around thinking, what does it look like for me to tell others that whatever it is I thought that was the end of my life was only the beginning? That life doesn't stop with this or that, but is only just beginning as you learn to abide in the love of the Father. We pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot comprehend your love. 
We cannot truly understand what it is that you have done for us and how in you we are able to enter into relationship with your Father, but we are grateful and we long for it, O Lord. We need it. We need you to deliver us out of our sin. We need you to deliver us from the feelings of of worthlessness and shame that have creeped into our lives. We need you to remind us that we are not forgotten, that we are not an afterthought, but that your grace has been intended for us from before the foundations of the world, and that by your grace you are equipping us to respond, not because we can save ourselves or run the race on our own, but because your grace continually invites us into your presence and into your power, such that our disabilities begin to disappear. And we can sense more and more your power and the depth of your love. Remind us always, O Lord, of the story of your gospel, which is the story of a father and his love for his son and his love for all of his adopted children. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen.